Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. Today we're wrapping up David's story. So open your Bibles first, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24. And as you do that, we've all watched a movie where you got to a certain scene in the movie and right in the middle of the scene, the credits start to roll and you're like, no, there's no way that that's the last scene of this movie. Like there's loose ends that need to be tied up. You have so many questions. Like they didn't even end the movie. It's just... That's the, that cannot be the end of the story. And I, I tell you that because the wrap-up of David's story in 2 Samuel 24 leaves you wondering, like, there's no way that that's the end of the story. So here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to walk you through David's story. And when I first read this, I was super disappointed. I was like, God, what, what are you doing? And um, then I remembered, um, I'm actually reading God's holy word, and I'm not the critic over the word. So it made me dig in and really deeply study, what are you trying to communicate? And I arrived at a different place. But you today, as we read through this, as we study our way through this, I'm going to invite you. You come with your own conclusion. Is this a great way for this story to end, or is it dissatisfying? So here's where this begins. The story begins with, well, Israel's sin. Here's how this reads. 2 Samuel 24.1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Question, why is God's anger burning against Israel? Um, up until this point in the Old Testament, there were 20 times where it reads that God's anger burned against Israel. And every time it was the same thing. Israel forgot God. They lived as if God hadn't been their rescuer, hadn't been their God, hadn't been their savior. And they just ignored him. They forgot him. They turned their backs on him. And they really decided we don't need God. In this case, if if we're really following the text, we don't know what Israel had done as a whole nation. But we can assume this. If their life is on repeat, this is the 21st time that they turned their backs on God and acted like they didn't need him. Um, So God takes action. Here it is. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, here's what's really fascinating. I don't know if you know this, but David's story that's recorded in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel actually has a parallel account in the book of 1 Chronicles. So when you get to a, a, a moment like this, you can actually go to the book of First Chronicles, in this case, First Chronicles chapter 21, and you can read the exact same account. And there's sometimes that there's a difference. L- listen to how First Chronicles 21 reads. It says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a sentence, the census. Uh, so who started this? Did, did God incite this or did Satan incite it or, or did David by his own sinful nature incite this? See, I don't see this as actually contradictory. I see this as that God is sovereign and in control above all of it, that he will use Satan's own evil desires in the world to get what he wants. 
to get what God wants. He will also use his own action, God's own action, to get what he wants. He will also use David's sinful nature. God is the, is the one behind all of this, so I don't see these as actually contradictory or conflicting. So let's talk about a census. David takes this sentence, census, and you kind of wonder, like, well, what is so bad about that? What could be wrong? Now, context deeply matters. Remember what we did last week? We were in chapter 23. And in chapter 23, we looked at the Medal of Honor recipients in David's army. He lists 37 mighty men that acted with valor and courage. But here's here's what's interesting. The insinuation of David wanting to take a census that means this. He's going to go count all of the mighty men in all of Israel and all of Judah. The insinuation is this, that David goes, yeah, there's not just 37 men. Let's see how many men we have. And he's asking this question, how strong are we? Acknowledging the courage of his mighty men turned into this. It turned into David trusting in those mighty men to measure the power and strength of Israel. Here's the problem with that. It directly goes in opposition to God's economy and the way that God counts. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 9, it reads this way. It is not by strength that one prevails. When David won all those victories, was it because he had more men? No, it's because God was with him. And in God's economy, God always measures the power of the nation by his strength not David's strength. I don't know how you measure your strength in your life. Is it because God is with you or because you have such great ability? It's interesting, later on in the, in the Old Testament, you get to this prophet Zechariah and he writes this. He says, it is not by might nor by power, literally not by your ability, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty, which is amazingly good news. Because it means this, there is no cap to your potential. There's no ceiling that will cut you off that says, oh, you can't. God says, if I want you to do it, it's up to me. And I will empower you to do the things that I call you to. But in this case, David's like, yeah, you know, God's been great. He's got me along so far. But look at how strong he made us now. He goes, let's count everybody. Now, he gets a warning from his his commander of his army, Joab. Verse 3, but Joab replied to the king. May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over. May God give you strength, right? And may the eyes of the Lord, the king, see it. But why does my Lord, the king, want to do such a thing? And Joab's like, don't do this. This is not of God. This is not good. But David, being the king, he uh, overpowers him. He, David gets his wishes. And for the next nine months and 20 days, Joab travels to the farthest northern regions of Israel and the farthest southern regions of Judah, and they count all of their fighting men. And here's what they find out. They have 800,000 soldiers in Israel, and they have 500,000 soldiers in Judah. But when Joab returns, David comes to this conclusion. Look at verse 10. David was conscience stricken after he'd counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very 
foolish thing. Because what he had done is he'd shun God's leadership. Now, Israel, I think we can safely assume this, that they were being uh, pridefully self-reliant along with David. They didn't, they didn't fear God. They didn't honor God. They were acting as if they didn't need him, and they just followed their own cravings. And now, David recognizes his sin, but it doesn't say that Israel recognized their sin. So here's the consequence. The next morning, this prophet shows up. His name is Gad. Gad comes to David, and he lets him know that God has responded to his prayers, but there is a consequence for their sin, particularly for Israel's sin. And God gives David a choice. (laughs) God essentially does this. David, um, you go back behind the barn and you pick your own switch that you're going to get spanked by. And God says, here's your options. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months of fleeing from your enemy. Or you can have three days of a plague. And David is just in anguish over this. God, I have to pick? Here's his conclusion, verse 14. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. Here's why. For his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. It's an amazing statement about how David views God as as merciful. And it's an interesting statement about how he doesn't trust his enemies. I don't trust my enemies that they will be merciful. So he puts himself into God's hands and he says, I'll take the three-day plague. Verse 15, so the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of time, until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 people from Dan to Beersheba died. Dan is a town in the farthest north section. Beersheba is a town in the farthest south section. So there's this angel of the Lord that carries this plague, this angel of death, from the farthest north to the south. And people, people died. 70,000 people. Um, And remember, it is not because of David's sin. David's sin was the tip of the iceberg. It's about Israel's sin because God's anger burned against Not just David, Israel. You get to verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the place where David lives, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. That's that's the man who owned this land. So let's be clear, behind the plague, there's actually an angel of God, an angel of death who's doing this. And as this angel approaches the capital city where David lived, God said, enough, stop. Um, I do think it's interesting that David had a moment of repentance and yet God doesn't inflict the consequence on his family but we don't see a repentance of Israel who just has to take the consequence of their sin. Um, so this threshing floor, you know what this is, right? 
It's where they, it's where they would process grain. They would go there and it'd be up on a hill because up on a hill, that's where the wind would blow. And they would take a, a, the winnowing fork and kind of toss the grain and the unedible, inedible chaff would blow away and the good heavier grain would fall to the ground. And it, it would, it, it's where they processed this. So David goes there and he sees this angel and he has this full confession of his sin. God, I have messed up. Forgive me. And the prophet Gad then tells David, here's what God wants you to do. On that threshing floor, I want you to build an altar to the Lord. So David goes to the owner, Arana. He, he goes, listen, I, I need to purchase your land so that I can put an altar here. And Arana's like, you don't have to purchase it. If it'll stop this plague, you can have it all for free. And David makes this, this statement. Look at verse 24. But the king replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I just want to hit a pause button here for the story real quick. Um, as you live for Christ, as you show generosity, as you make sacrifices and you give back to God, I just want to ask you this question. Does it actually cost you something? Your time, your talents, and your treasure. Does it actually cost you anything? Or is it something that it's really, it's just your leftovers. It's just something that you will never feel if you give away that time, that talent, or that treasure. Because in David's situation, he's so grateful to God for this death stopping that he says, no, 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 whatever I sacrifice back to God, I want it to, to cost me something. And then here is the final verse. This is the scene right before the credits are about to roll. It says this. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel stopped. That's it. <laughs> Story over. Uh, movie over. The writer of 2 Samuel seems to stop there and then the credits roll. Satisfying? Is this the ending that you thought the writer would bring to you about David's life? Now, if you want to hear how he died, you could turn the page and go to 1 Kings and you see the end of David's life. But, but listen, this is where the writer of 2 Samuel stops. So look at this carefully with me. David built an altar, a stone altar, and sacrificed burnt offerings on the altar. Now, we got to understand what a burnt offering is. Okay, In the Old Testament, it was this. You would bring a bull a goat, a sheep, or if you were really poor, you'd bring a bird and you'd bring it to the priest and he would sacrifice that animal, kill it, take blood from that animal and, and put it on the altar and then light a fire and that animal, all of it would be completely consumed. The, the thought was the blood of the animal pays for your wrongdoings, pay, pays for your rebellion, your sin. And then it's totally consumed. That's a burnt offering. But did you notice in the text that there's also another kind of offering? It's called a fellowship offering. Here's how they're different. It's still a bull, um, a goat, or a sheep, and you bring it. But when they kill the animal, they actually take some of the meat, set it aside, and that priest would create a feast out of that. They would, they would cook that 
for the family that brought it. And the priest, as God's representation, would have a meal with this family as this. It's as if God is having a meal with you, so it is your fellowship with God. It's the reminder that after you've been forgiven by this sacrifice, it's the reminder that you have restored relationship and restored fellowship with God. This is what this ending scene is all about. Two things, a payment for sin and a restoration to relationship with God. Now, here's what's also interesting. Remember I told you, you go to like the book of Chronicles and get a, a parallel account of this. This is how 2 Chronicles 3.1 tells the story. And this is afterwards. And it tells the story of David's son, Solomon. Now, if you remember this, Solomon, his son, he built a temple. Here's the interesting question. Where did he build the temple? 3.1 says this, then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father, David. It was on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. For the next thousand years, now, I know that Israel would get conquered and exiled and the temple destroyed, but for the next thousand years, the whole point was that they would have an altar where David started this, this burnt offering and fellowship offering so that people could be forgiven and have fellowship with God, that this would be for the next thousand years where this would happen. On the same site because of this story. This whole moment was for the Jewish people to recognize that God put an end to death on that day and forgave the sins of Israel because there was a sacrifice on an altar that would later become the temple that would then point to something else. So, the ending of 2 Samuel. Do you like it? Does that feel great? Like, wow, there's so much hope that is coming for this. Um, I'm going to say this. I think what it does is 2 Samuel is the prequel to the sequel. Star Wars fans in here? Yeah. You went to, uh, if you're old enough, you went to see Star Wars 1, 2, and 3 in the 70s and 80s, right? Like, oh, what a great series. And then in 1999, they came out with episode number one. No, 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 no. I watched one, two, and three. And then they came out with episode one. You're like, no, 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 this is four. And what you, we didn't realize, and if you're not a Star Wars nerd, um, this is what happened. They, they put this series and one, two, and three happened here, but then they're telling the story about what happened earlier. See, you and I, we read this story known as the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we go back and we read 2 Samuel, which is the prequel to this story. Let me prove it to you. Here we go. This is where it gets fun. Here, here's the, here's the, the summary of 2 Samuel 24, right? It starts with sin, right? And, and I know some of you are like panicking. Like, man, this is going to be the longest message ever. I haven't even filled in one single blank yet. And I know you're nervous, but here we go. You better get writing. 
This is, it starts with sin. It's Israel's sin and David's sin, the pride of self-reliance. And number two, it goes to guilt. David recognizes his own sin. Israel does not, though, which leads to what? It leads to death. 70,000 people die as a consequence of sin. It also led to the death of these sacrifices. Then it's mercy. I mean, God stopped this angel from delivering the plague of death onto Jerusalem. And then there's this sacrifice on a hill where an altar was built so David could offer a blood sacrifice so that death could be halted. And these two sacrifices, the burnt offering, the, the, the fellowship offering, they, they represent this. Number six, forgiveness, relationship, and a way back to righteous living. Does that sound familiar to any other story? That second Samuel, the way it ended, begs the question, what's next? And a thousand years later, Jesus would arrive on the scene and live out those same six points. So here's what I want to do. The book of Romans summarizes why Jesus came. So let me walk you through what Romans says about those six points. Number one, in relationship to sin. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The gospel begins with a dark story about the the sin that our world is involved in, including us. It's this sin of pride and self-reliance. I don't need God. Why, Why would I need God? Look how capable, look how smart I am, look how rich I am, look how whatever I am. And you're like, well, who lives in darkness? And they make it really clear, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means everybody. The word all in the Greek, it's interesting. It means all. It means there's not a person in the room, not a person in the city, not a person in the world that has not turned their back on God, which leads to this. Number two, guilt. This is how Romans summarizes it. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death. So they get it like, oh, I'm guilty. But they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Like, I get it. I'm not with God. And I'm going to continue to not be with God because I want to do life my own way. And it leads to a consequence. And here's the consequence. The consequence is number three, death. Um, The result of sin... The consequence of sin is death. And I want to talk about this for just a minute. I want to pause on this. Um, This is what makes us really uncomfortable about reading David's story. I don't know if you felt it. I felt it. When I read that 70,000 people died, we all get really uncomfortable. And as Christians, it's almost like, well, you know, I'm not going to read that story. Because I feel like I have to defend God. Like, listen, I know that makes God look like a monster or really bad, but like, God's really not that bad. Like, why do we feel like we have to defend God? I think it's for this reason right here. I think it's because we don't think we deserve death. I think you and I and a lot of Christians, we underestimate our sin and our rebellion against God. I I think we have this false idea that humanity, us included, 
we're really not that bad. I mean, we're good with a little bit of sin. My neighbors, though, I mean, they're, they're not even that good. They got a lot of sin. And I don't think we see it the way God sees it. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals this, that the ugliness of our own souls is that 100% of humanity deserves death as a punishment for our rejection of God. See, the good news, that's what gospel means, good news. The good news is only good if we understand how bad our current circumstances are. When we understand that we're actually deserving of death, the good news that there's forgiveness in relationship with God, that becomes amazing news, not just good. Romans says it this way, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. See, God's not being mean. He's being just. That's justice. Romans 6.23 states it this way, for the wages of sin, wages is things that we've earned, is death. God is not being cruel. He's being just. But when we think he's being cruel, the reality is this, is we don't understand God's holiness. And I will fully admit that I don't understand God's holiness. If I did, I would live in the fear of the Lord, is how the Bible describes it. And I would have a grasp on how dark the human soul really is. But this is where mercy steps in. Number four. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? His kindness was this, that Jesus would walk into Jerusalem And he would go up on his own hill of sacrifice. The same way that David, for a thousand years, they had offered these sacrifices on a hill outside, inside of Jerusalem, that there was a hill in Jerusalem that Jesus would say, this is where I give my life to be the final and the perfect sacrifice. It's a sign of God's mercy. But his kindness gave us this gift right here. Romans 6, 23. But the gift of God is eternal life. That means forgiveness and restoration to relationship with God, eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus, on multiple occasions, his his followers listened to him and they heard him say this, I'm going to Jerusalem and I will die there as a sacrifice, as a ransom for people's lives. But here's what's Even more amazing than that, he not only predicted his death, he said this, and three days later, I'm coming back because death can't overpower me. My father's going to rescue me. He's going to step in and I'm going to come back to life. And when Jesus dies on the cross, his, his followers are like, well, that's it. That's over. They weren't even anticipating that his words were even true. And three days later, Jesus comes alive, shows himself first to the women followers of his group and then to his other disciples. And it says this, over the period of 40 days, not just one day, not just one little illusion that maybe somebody thought they saw him, saw a guy that looked like him. Was that Jesus? I'm not sure. No, they sat with him and had a meal over 40 days. 
And he appeared to hundreds of people. In one occasion, he showed up, appeared to 500 people at one time. That's what the the story of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 reveals. It's not mass delusion. It's the greatest event in the history of the world that is based off of the mercy of God. Number five, the sacrifice. It was Jesus' sacrifice on a hill that stopped the consequences of sin. This final chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 24, it illustrates Jesus' story. Why? So that the Jewish people, who for the next thousand years are trying to go to the temple to make a sacrifice, that they would recognize Jesus' words as, I'm the final sacrifice. You don't have to go to the temple anymore. A bull, a goat, a sheep, it doesn't, no longer will pay for your sins because I am the greatest of all time. I am the goat. And I'm making final payment for your sins. He is the sacrifice. And it reads this way in Romans 3. All are justified. What that means is you are forgiven. It does not mean innocence. Because innocence would mean this. Look at me. I'm innocent. I've never done anything wrong. That's so different. That can actually lead to pride. Justified means you're pronounced innocent even though you're guilty, meaning somebody paid for you. That's a totally different approach to life. That means this, you know what? I was guilty, but somebody else paid for my sin and that leads to a life of gratitude, not a life of self-reliant pride or arrogance. All of that sacrifice leads to an amazing opportunity for all of humanity. It leads to this, forgiveness, relationship with God, and righteous living. This is how Romans puts it. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen, not all humanity will. There are people who will not believe this, who will reject this, who will consider this a myth or a fairy tale. But I think that word everyone in in that text means this. It's open to you. You can have it. He already knows what you've done and he offers it to you. And some of you are like, no, no, no. My life has been so messed up. I'm just here to like, maybe I'll glean a little wisdom, but God, forgiveness for me, yes. It's for you. He wants to have forgiveness for you. He wants for you to live in a constant relationship with him. And he wants all that to lead to this righteous living. First Peter 2.24, final verse here says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Meaning he paid for you. So that we might die to sin. So you might live righteously. And live for righteousness. That simply means this. You're going to make the right decision. You're going to do the right thing. By his wounds, we've been healed. The gift of forgiveness, relationship, and righteous living is is extended to us by Jesus. But it is only activated by this word called faith. Faith simply means this. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died for you on that cross, that he was resurrected to prove that he was God's son? Do you believe he paid for you? That's what faith means. It's believing it and accepting it. Repentance. Repentance is this. 
I lived my life in prideful self-reliance. Now I live in relationship with Jesus where I rely on his leadership. He's my boss. That's the part where the word Lord comes in. Jesus, he's my savior and Lord. You've heard that, read that in the text, right? He's not just the one who saved us. He's the one who now, he's our Lord. He's our boss. He's the one who leads us. So let me just, I'm gonna finish with this. Where are you? Where are you in relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Where are you regarding his offer of forgiveness and relationship? Do you daily live in dependence on him? I mean, are you striving to live out his righteousness? Because all of that is symbolized in what we call communion. And it's about what we're about to do right now. See, the bread that we eat symbolizes his body that was broken on the cross. And the juice we drink symbolizes his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We do this so that we can live not in prideful self-reliance, but live in total gratitude for being justified, forgiven, and brought back. David's story points to Jesus's story. And the hope was that in those thousand years, like when we, when we arrive at that moment where Jesus comes to earth, that the Jewish people would recognize it. But the truth is, it wasn't just for the Jewish people. It was opened up to all the world. Which means this, it's opened up to you. So I guess first I would ask this, have you accepted this? Have you received this gift of forgiveness, relationship, and restoration? And if you haven't, then do it today. Here's how you do it. You pray and you say, God, I believe, I have faith that Jesus really came to earth. He's your son and he died in my place. And I've lived without you in my life. And now I'm turning my life over to you. I'm receiving forgiveness. You're adopting me as one of your kids. I'm gonna live in relationship with you every day. And you're gonna take my rebellious life and turn it into a righteous life. That prayer isn't this magical thing that, that like, oh, now I can just go do whatever I want. No, 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 that puts you in relationship with God. And some of you might need to receive that today. And if you do that today, I'm gonna tell you this, don't let it be a secret. If it's a secret, the righteous living just never seems to follow. <laughs> we just go back into our same old patterns. So you tell somebody, you come tell me, you tell anybody you came with. Tell another Christian, today I gave my life to Christ. And for those of you that you've already made this decision, I, I will ask this question. Maybe you've accepted that, but man, there's some unrighteous living going on in your life right now. Man, confess that. God, I, I wanna be done with that. It's got a grip on me, but, but your strength has the ability. I'm gonna live by your strength, not by my might, not by my power, but by your spirit. And that God, you would get that off of me. And I would make the right decisions now. And for those of you, you're like, no, I, I'm walking with Christ. As you eat and drink, here's, here's what I hope you experience. Unbelievable gratitude and joy. And I pray that for all of you. Those of you that accept Christ for day, for on today, those of you that get right with God, and those of you that can just celebrate this, that you would have joy and gratitude for this sacrifice that opens up relationship with God to you. Let me pray. God, as we take this bread and drink this juice, I pray that the next chapter in the story is our story. 
that you write for us. And it's a story of forgiveness. It's a story of new life. It's a story of unbelievable potential and possibility of life with you. I pray that your spirit would um, really convict us right now. And that we would sense your invitation to have life with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.